patients with a high exhaled nitric oxide and a high blood eosinophil count have particularly high risk of having future asthma attacks. You are listening to Treatable Traits on Asthma. This series is intended for healthcare professionals that are interested in being updated within asthma. You will be updated according to available science and the speaker's clinical experiences. Welcome to the next episode of the podcast Treatable Traits. Today we will dig into the treatable traits concerning type 2 inflammation. My name is Professor Vibeke Bagger. I'm professor at the main university hospital Rigshospitalet, Copenhagen University Hospital in Denmark. Also a warm welcome to my two colleagues, Professor Peter Gibson from Australia and Professor Ian Pervor from UK. Type 2 inflammation is something we all see in our daily work with asthma patients. Ian, why is type 2 inflammation so important? Yeah, um, thank you, Rebecca. Uh, type 2 inflammation is, in my view, the key treatable trait, the, you know, the most important treatable trait, which always needs to be assessed in a patient with obstructive airways disease. It's common being present in 60 to 70% of patients with symptomatic asthma, 30% of patients with COPD, and around 20 to 30% of patients with chronic cough. It's a, an inflammatory process which uh, is involved in particularly exacerbations of these uh, conditions. Uh, can be called eosinophilic airway inflammation. It's a process where eosinophils are moved from where they're produced in the bone marrow to the airway epithelium under the control of three key cytokines, IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13, and epithelial alarmins, including TSLP. And eosinophils cause major disruption at the airway epithelial level, they change the physicochemical properties of uh, airway mucins, resulting in mucus plugging, uh, thickening of the airway wall with edema and uh, uh, fibrosis, airway smooth muscle contraction. And collectively, these processes cause airflow obstruction, which is not particularly bronchodilator responsive and is therefore particularly likely to cause asthma attacks. And the, the reason I think it's a key treatable trait is that it drives a really serious clinical outcome, which are attacks of asthma or COPD. It's very easy to identify. There are very, very simple biomarkers, which everyone can do. And it's very treatable. So, yeah, it is a cardinal treatable trait. It's identifiable. It drives an important clinical outcome and it's treatable. So I would put it top of my list of treatable traits that need to be assessed in patients with obstructive airways disease. Chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, it's 80% of it's having type 2 inflammation in the Western uh, world, part of the world, whereas in the uh, Asia, it's the other way around, but it's becoming more uh, frequent. So type 2 inflammation is very important in ENT as well. Peter, is it for MDs uh, in clinical work or is it only for researchers when we are talking about type 2? 
Yeah, so the the research is really well worked out, understanding the mechanisms of type 2 inflammation and the, the practical clinical consequences of that research is that we have very effective treatments, so corticosteroids and specific monoclonal antibodies. So it is real-time clinical practice now. We have effective tools to determine the presence of type 2 inflammation with the blood eosinophil count and exhaled nitric oxide, and we have specific and effective treatments with corticosteroids and um, targeted monoclonal antibody therapy. So this is routine clinical practice for people managing asthma. What about pheno, Ian? Do you use that for every patient? Yeah, absolutely. It's the most important test that you can do. Uh, and it's a really simple test. It takes about 10 seconds to do. Um, so a, a simple breath test, like a roadside breathalyzer test. And in combination with the blood eosinophil count, gives you a lot of information about the likelihood that this process type 2 airway inflammation is present. Um, patients who have both a raised exhaled nitric oxide and a raised blood eosinophil count are particularly likely to have type 2 airway inflammation and to have problems associated with it. So these are the patients that you need to be looking for. Uh, now, the presence of symptoms and the impaired lung function and the pattern of the impaired lung function are not going to really help you determine whether type 2 airway inflammation is present or not. So it is a biomarker-based assessment. Um, and the more compelling the biomarker signal is, the more consistent it is, the more likely the patient is to have this process. So, yeah, it's the first thing that I look for and do in patients with uh, uh, airways disease is, uh, do I think type 2 airway inflammation is present? Yes, it's a very important treatable trait. And what about the alamines IL-25 and IL-33 in the type 2 cascade? What roles do they play in the treatable traits, Peter? So... This is uh, a new new aspect of uh, pr treatment of severe asthma. Now that we have specific antibodies that will block alarmins, epithelial alarmins, and we're seeing them to be effective in clinical practice, that's sort of taken our thinking well, uh, to a, an earlier stage in the mechanistic process. And so the answer is yes, they do play a role and treatment directed against them is effective in severe asthma. But how do we measure it? It's not possible to directly measure alarmins in the clinic. The patients that have the best response turn out to be those that have the most consistent T2 inflammation signal. So you can still use the T2 pathway to, to help guide you in, in that process. Um, I'd be interested in your and Ian's experience with this because these drugs are not accessible to me in Australia at, at present. So I'm relying on the literature and the expertise of, of people like you to talk about how they're, how you select 
an anti-alarmant versus an anti, say, IL-5 treatment. Ian, what do you say? How is your experience with the new uh, drugs, the last uh, anti-TSLP coming in the market right now? Yeah, I agree with your general comments, but uh, uh, we're fortunate to have six different biologic drug drugs targeting four different mechanisms, um, and they're all highly effective. But we don't have good data uh, uh, comparing biologic A with biologic B, um, and we probably ne we need that information. I suspect where we will end up is in a rather good situation where we have the right biologic for the right patient and we're profiling uh, patients. And of course, this is the principle being the treatable trait principle. Um, but we're not there yet. And we have a lack of good comparative data, I'm afraid. I think the problem could be that you try one biologic and that doesn't really work well. Then you try the other one that might not work as well. And then you try the third one and the um, chance of that one being better off than the other ones in this particular patient could be a problem. Yes, I mean, if a biologic doesn't work, one's first thought should be that you've chosen the wrong treatable trait to treat. <laughs> And there's something else that's driving um, that's driving the that person's problems. That would be my first thought. Um, now, uh, sometimes your biologic A, A fails, and you're pretty convinced that you're treating the right process. And there is value in changing your approach. For example, moving from targeting IL-5 to targeting IL-4-13 or targeting TSLP. But uh, my first thought of a biologic doesn't work is you've, you've got the wrong treatable trait. Yeah. Peter, now talking about treatable traits and uh, treatment of patients with asthma. Um, in our country, we use some uh, oral steroids, but what about in your country? Yeah, so we've recently looked at this um, using prescription data And we were alarmed at the amount of short-course oral steroid that's being used for respiratory problems. And that's things like asthma, uh, rhinosinusitis and polyps. Uh, we think it's excessive. And when you link that up to the, the work that's been done showing that it's cumulative lifetime oral steroid dose that's a real problem, you then start to see quite an alarming picture. And, and, and that is that many people are, are crossing the threshold where they are at risk of significant side effects from cumulative lifetime oral steroid use. And these are not just the simple side effects that we know about, like osteoporosis, but there's many other things, uh, diabetes, depression, Uh, sepsis, in increased um, clotting disorders, a wide range of conditions that cumulative oral steroid toxicity can, can contribute to. So I do think we have a big problem on our hands. Fortunately, I think we now have the tools to deal with it. Uh, and those tools are targeted therapies and treatable traits is a key part of that. Could you uh, could you merge the use of steroids with the 
diagnose of disease? Like, was it the asthma patient who were taking it, or was it the chronic rhinosinusitis? Uh, so, in that study, it was predominant. Well, it was it was being we thought it was being used for asthma. So we we but we couldn't differentiate the primary purpose. Okay, because. Uh, what I have found out going into a new area is that uh, the use of steroids, oil steroids in Denmark, are not that high. We tend to use more uh, higher dosage of inhaled steroids. That might be better, but it's still high dosage and it's still steroids. But what I found out in the new area was that um, the patient taking care of chronic rhinosinusitis they are pushed by the patients because the patients, their their main complaint is loss of smell, and they can't see the um, the Christmas coming on without being able to smell the food, and therefore they often get the uh, steroids uh, in December, and similarly uh, in the northern European area we have summertime in June, July, and there, before going on vacation, they tend to have another shot or another cure. So I hopefully that will change now that the biologics have been a uh, possibility. Yes, we have a similar experience in that patients definitely experience benefits from short-course oral steroids. So for asthma, they can be life-saving. And that's really been the focus um, up until now. But we need to, I think, educate people about the, the cumulative risks. We, and we haven't done that previously in a systematic way. Now's a good time to do it, as you say, because we've got tools to offer patients the benefit of steroids, but with minimising the toxicity and biologics and treatable traits are the are the the ways of of bringing that change about? Could I ask you, Peter? None of you have mentioned IgE. Where does that one play a role? And is it something you measure? Yeah. So IgE is part of the T two inflammatory process, and so the you know the T helper type two cells drive B cell activation and then specific IgE responses uh, to allergens. When is it important? So if if you're concerned about the role of a specific allergen as a trigger for someone's asthma, uh, are they exposed to pets? Do they have a response to food such as nuts, for example? Or do they have a complication like um, aspergillus, the fungal sensitization? That's when IgE is helpful. Uh, so it's helpful getting more specificity to their treatable trait. Do they have an aller allergic inflammation as a treatable trait? And uh, in terms of treatments, so Ian said we have six uh, specific monoclonals that can target different aspects of the T2 process. And we do have agents that can target IgE-mediated inflammation. So it's it's relevant, it's, it's part of the landscape, and it's part of the assessment that you might do in a patient with severe asthma. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the reason we emphasize uh, exhaled nitric oxide and blood eosinophils is that they very consistently been shown to be linked to a key outcome. Um, and patients with a high exhaled nitric oxide and a high blood eosinophil count have particularly high risk of having future asthma attacks. And this is independent of uh, their disease severity, lung function, symptom scores. Uh, so these are two prognostic biomarkers. They are additive in terms of what they add, um, in terms of what they predict. They're not only prognostic biomarkers, they're predictive biomarkers. So patients who have raised pheno and blood eosinophils have a better response to biologics. Different uh, biomarker signatures may allow us to choose the best biologic. So if you have a pheno-dominant signal, it might make more sense to target the epithelial side with an anti-IL-4, anti-IL-13, or an anti-TSLP. If you have a blood eosinophil-dominated signal, it might make more sense to target that with an anti-IL-5. I think we're not quite there yet, but these two biomarkers tell us an, an enormous amount. I, I see them as being like the airway cholesterol and blood pressure. <laughs> now, men of a certain age, and Peter and I are of that age, I'm afraid, when we go to our general practitioner with an ingrowing toenail or a headache, we, we get our blood pressure and cholesterol measured without even asking for it. And we're told that we have a risk of uh, ischemic heart disease of whatever, and that this risk can be reduced if we lower our blood pressure and lower our cholesterol. Well, pheno uh, and blood eosinophils are exactly the same. These are biomarkers of risk. But how many patients with asthma, when they have their annual review, have these biomarkers measured? And I, I think one area we've really got to move forward with is getting this into routine clinical care in the way the cardiologist did. And you can have asthma that's low, that where there's no symptoms, there's no lung function issues, so the patient's perfectly happy, but they're really red-hot biomarkers. Uh, and these are the patients that are at risk. We talked earlier about the symptom low-risk-high patients. Um, and these are the sorts of patients that... that, that um, would benefit from exposure to corticosteroids sort of earlier on. Um, we can also identify quite large proportion of patients that have low biomarkers and are not fundamentally at risk. <laughs> they may have a symptom problem, but they don't have a big risk problem. Um, so, yeah, if there's one thing that we need to achieve um, before you know, over the next four to five years, and we said in the Lancet Commission that this was a key thing. We said in our book that we wrote recently, The Asthmas, that this is a key thing that needs to happen, is making assessment of these biomarkers part of routine clinical care in the same way that the cardiologists have done with their biomarkers. And if we can do that, I think there would be a massive impact. I don't know what you think, Peter. Am I over-egging this? Or, uh, but I, I think it would make a massive difference to asthma outcomes and, 
and care. What do you think, Peter? Yeah, I agree with you, Ian. And I think what what we have the opportunity before us is we can manage risk, we can identify and manage risk. And the scary thing with asthma is that it, it's so highly variable. It, you, you can experience uh, minimal symptoms and then when exposed to some, some get a virus infection or something like that, you you straight away get a severe attack. You could be hospitalized or it could even be fatal. So what are the tools that allow us to identify people at risk of that? And Ian's outlined two of the key tools that we have, and that they are markers of T2 inflammation. So I would like to end this session saying that the biomarkers Uh, which was something somebody was measuring just 10 years ago, is now something we should measure. And it has been increasing uh, performed the last five years. So thank you for this session. If you are interested in hearing more about treatable traits, we will in the next episode discuss treatable traits in upper and lower airways and comorbidities. Take time to subscribe for this podcast on the channel you're using so you don't miss out on new episodes. Mm-hmm.